Good morning. How many of you are grateful that that is true, that when the Spirit of God is present, the entire atmosphere changes? And how many of you are grateful that someone loved you enough to tell you the truth so that the Holy Spirit could pursue you, invade you, and save you? Amen? The Bible says, and we learned this last week as we were walking through Galatians. I want to tell you a couple things today, but um, we learned last week that we are heirs who inherit and we are heirs expected to invest. Expected to invest the very gospel that has been invested to us and changed us. And so the question I have as we start this morning is how are you doing with that investment? How are you investing the gospel in others? Where you live, work, and play, your life intersects with other people. How is the gospel being prevalent in your life? Because a, a day is coming and is here even now. I'm excited about this. Where we, were, we are going to celebrate the fact that we could do nothing to save ourselves. But the work of Jesus on the cross atoned for us and gave us true freedom. In just two weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. And for the first time in my life, last year, I celebrated Easter on my own couch at home with my family. And that was a neat experience. That was kind of cool. But how many of you missed the ability to gather as his church on Resurrection Sunday? Amen. And so how many of you know you don't know what you've got until it's gone, right? So this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to, there's no better time to start thinking about your investment for the gospel than right now and who you're inviting, whether it's be in this room or online, to hear the truth of the gospel. In fact, for the next two weeks, we're going to push away from our series in Galatians. Today, I'm going to talk through Galatians 4, 8 through 20. But next week and the week after, the entire letter from Paul in Galatians is about how what Jesus did truly freed us, truly saved us. But I don't think that I want to look at a letter about what Jesus did. I think I want to look at what Jesus did. Amen? We're coming into the period of the historical Christian calendar called Holy Week. And it starts this week at Palm Sunday. And so we're going to look intently at what Jesus did and how he gave his life so you and I could truly live. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate that the cross is empty and so is that tomb. Amen? All right. Maybe a couple of us are excited about that. I'm excited about that. I'll be praying for me because I can maybe contain myself. But I'm excited about that. You'll be listening today, preparing your heart for how you might seek to invest and invite someone to know the truth that has set you free. Jumping right into Galatians 4, verse 8. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather you are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Pretty harsh language from Paul here, but I think you're going to see that this is not a plea in anger. This is a plea in passion. So today our title is called No Turning Back. I want to start by looking at verse 10 here, and then we're going to jump right into the first point. In verse 10, he says, you're observing special days, months, and seasons. Commentators are split on this, this verse. Some say that he's challenging the Gentiles for going back 
to worshiping pluralistically those images that have been carved by man's own hand. They're not truly gods. He said those things that you deem as gods, but they're not truly gods. And you only worship them because we learned last week that there was a moral law, a natural law that you had failed. You were never under the Judaic law, but you understood that you lived for something and for someone and had fallen short of his glory. And so because you could recognize your own faults, your own fallacies, your own sin, you do things like eat a certain way and you act a certain way and observe certain gods on certain festival days of your pagan calendar just to appease them so they don't smite you for failing them. And some commentators go, you've reverted to worshiping that which is not even real. It's empty. And he'll go on and say it's more than empty. It's demonic. And other commentators sit on this side and they go, when you look at the, letter, the entire letter of the tone of Galatians, he is talking to a people who are being influenced by Judaizers who were never under the law to now embrace the law and practice the Judaic festival calendar uh, months and to worship in this way. And he's simply saying, look, there was not another person on the planet who knew that calendar year, the practice thereof better than me. And let me tell you that it is empty. Let me tell you, by keeping the law, at no point was I saved. I practice it because I am Jewish in hopes to share Jesus with those who practice the law. But there is nothing salvific about me keeping these dates, these months, or years. So either way, what Paul is saying is this. No matter how you read this commentary, the point is the same. You have been freed by Jesus and by Jesus alone because you could not save yourself. But for some reason... You are turning back. You're either turning back to your old life or you're turning to embrace one that was never yours and you're embracing their old life. But you are turning back. If you could only be freed by taking the reins of your own life and placing them entirely in Jesus' hands, he's asking a question, why would you now take some of them or all of them back into your own? You could never save yourself, so why are you trying to control or what we just sang, take glory for something that is not yours to be had. Amen? So, um, I want to point out from that first point. Here's our first point, okay? He says, we've seen and been shown a lot. We've been shown a lot. That we could never save ourselves, that our lives completely are dependent upon Jesus. No matter how you look at it, there was an old way and now you are in new life. So why would you trade new and true life, true freedom for your former, for the former way? Why would you go back? He says there's no turning back. In 1 Kings 18, I want to show you just how not, it's not just, I say empty, and Paul says empty a lot. I want to show you just how much he realizes there's nothing empty in this. He, he points to, he goes, you're worshiping those things that are not truly gods. In 1 Kings 18, you have a challenge between uh, the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And Elijah is the lone prophet of God. There are over 450 prophets of Baal. And he says, you know what? We're going to have a challenge. We're going to deem once and for all who is God. Either Baal is God or it's the Lord. And so that you've probably read this. Raise your hand if you're familiar. The challenge is this. They're going to build an altar, prepare a bowl. They're going to wet it, and they're going to pray. And whoever lights that bowl first is truly God. So Baal worshipers prepare the bowl. They go first. 
they don't wet it, they just pray. And they do their rope prayers, they dance wildly, they do everything that Baal worship had taught them to do to evoke the move of their God. And they even did this, it says they mutilated themselves. They literally cut themselves and spilt their own blood to evoke the action of their God, Baal. Now, how many of you have come across anyone today, which has become a cultural norm, kids, teenagers, those who are in their early 20s, 30s, who have experienced or know someone who has experienced cutting? I want to tell you that this is not an empty practice. This is not an empty practice. This goes back to this time where you're looking at Elijah challenging the 450 prophets of Baal, the false gods. He says, these are not gods that you're worshiping. These are demons. And so he goes, when you spill your blood, it's because the darkness hates you and is telling you to mutilate yourself if in fact kill yourself so that you can evoke the move of your fake God because demons hate you. Hello? So those who go, I just started cutting because I was so numb and I can't, I, I just want to feel something. I do not discount the fact that you are numb and I do not discount the fact that you probably feel nothing. What I want to welcome your mind into is the fact that you've been so lied to, that practice is rooted in demonic worship. It's not empty. You're worshiping something you don't even understand and it cares nothing about you. It seeks to steal, kill, and destroy you. Hello? So if anyone in your life has experience with that or is practicing now, love them enough to be honest with them and give them the gospel. Here's your first investment. This is your first investment with the gospel. The thing that freed you can also free them if you'll love them enough to earn the right to share that with them. You want to evoke the action of God? Do you want to see your God move? Scripture tells us clearly what moves God, what will move him to move heaven and earth and reverse someone's eternal state. Someone who, uh, there's action that will take God to a place where he'll move someone from death to life, and it is this. It is repentance and surrender. It is the realization, cognizance, that my life offends a holy God. And he died on that cross to forgive me for such action. He offers me forgiveness, repent, and repentance leads to salvation if I will place my life, my reins of my life, completely in his hands and stop living for myself and start living for him, worshiping him. If you want to see the move of God in your life, you want to see the Holy Spirit enter a room and change the entire atmosphere, you want to see miracles, you repent and you receive what Jesus did for you on the cross that you could never do for yourself. Amen? If you want to see that in the life of your friends, he's telling the Gentiles, stop reverting to what was going back. Don't do legalistic practices that mean nothing. They actually point to darkness. Don't go back to things that are empty. Simply walk where you could never be saved and walk worthy of the gospel that has saved you. It's not about what you did. It's always and will always be about what he did. So he says, so walk free in that. He says, in the, back in the day, you worshiped in ignorance. You didn't understand, but now you have the truth. You know that you offended someone or something. So why would you now, as completely accountable, completely free adults, fully informed, revert to your unaccountable, ignorant ways of your former life, with which you were enslaved by the enemy as children? 
You cannot go back. How many of you are grateful that no amount of evil or good will ever rip you from the hand of God? There's nothing that once you are in Christ's hand that you can do that's going to reverse how he shifted heaven and earth to make you his. Nothing's going to change that. Amen? Because your salvation is in the hands of the author and the finisher of your faith and my faith. Amen? But how many of you recognize from whence you were saved? How many of you think quite often on the depths to which Jesus had to go, the length to which he had to die to save even you? I think that is what drives our investment for the gospel is when we recognize just how much we were invested in. John Newton wrote a famous hymn, maybe you've heard of it, it was called Amazing Grace. It was infamous. John Newton, who you may have known authored that hymn, may not have known the deep pain by which he authored those lyrics, that words of reality, those beautiful poetic words of prose in repentance through that hymn. It was born out of a place of deep pain and a cognizance that he had offended a holy God and his life lived opposed. Much like Isaiah when he says in Isaiah 6, recounting his own salvation when he met Jesus, he goes, woe is me, I'm undone, my, I'm an idolater, my lips are unclean, I'm amongst an unclean people. Forgive me God because my eyes have seen the true king. Much like that fashion, John Newton writes his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. At seven, his mother tragically died. By 11, he had set sail as a sailor on a ship. And by later in his 11th year, he had been taught the inhumane act of African slave trade. John Newton, on that ship amongst the most vile of individuals, became incredibly corrupt Quickly hardened by the evil and debaucherous surroundings on that ship, he had a reputation of being, as a preteen, more vulgar, immoral, and blasphemous than even his most heinous counterparts, those of which who were older. Hello? But then, at 23 years of age, his ship was ravaged by a severe storm, his own death imminent. Much, much like that picture of the disciples fighting for their lives in Mark 6 as Jesus is up on the mountaintop praying for 12 hours and they're in the Sea of Galilee, their best chance at survival, Peter. And Peter goes, I can't do this, we're going to die. Jesus comes walking to them water, on the water later and welcomes G, uh, Peter out into the waves with him. And then we know that Peter not only walked on water but sank and Jesus saved him. And Jesus says, oh, ye of little Faith, why did you doubt? So much like that picture, Newton is fighting for his life in the middle of a hurricane and in great fear, he cries out to God for mercy and was miraculously saved both spiritually and practically spared physically in that night. Never wanting, listen to this, this is so very important. If you get nothing else, get this. Never wanting to forget the depths from which he was saved physically and morally, eternally, he said, in God's grace, I'm going to have inscribed over my mantle, Deuteronomy 15, 15, which reads this way. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. What command was given to John Newton that day? What, what was given to the Deuteronomy picture, the Israelites that spoke so heavily to John Newton? Listen to this, I love it. Verse 12, if any of your people Hebrew men or women sell themselves to you and serve you six years. 
Then in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally with your flock from your threshing floor, from your wine press. Give to them as the Lord has so graciously given and blessed you. Why, why is that so powerful? Why would John Newton not want to forget that? Why would he want to remember? Because the man caught in the depths of sin, self-worship, and his own slave trade wrote amazing grace out of the revelation that he himself was the true slave. Amen? And then God called him to be even more gracious even more generous to those he had physically enslaved because God himself had been so gracious in forgiving John Newton. So the next time you sing the words amazing grace, I want you to think about the depths for which those words are being written. And I want you to think about your own life and the depths to which Jesus went to save you. Paul says this, it is with a kind heart but truly broken. Paul writes, I'm afraid that I've wasted my time and effort on you. Verse 12, he says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong, as you know. It is because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though through my illness was a trial, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as, I, as if I were an angel of God or if I were Christ himself. Where then is your blessing for me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul says, not only have we seen a lot, he says, we've been through a lot, you and me. We've been through a lot together. It was on his first missionary journey that we have read about, we know he recounted it at the beginning of this chapter, that Paul was uh, beaten in the beginning of the book of Galatians that he was left for dead in Lystra. Lystra is one of the churches he's writing to here in Galatia. They know that he was beaten and left for dead. But more than that, and what we have not covered, is that on that same first missionary journey through Galatia, he went through a region called Pamphylia. Pamphylia was known as a swamp region, heavy and often indicted with contact of malaria. And so... Paul, it is said, contracted malaria while going through Pamphylia and coming up to Galatia to preach the gospel. Now, a debilitating and painful disease, but not ongoing. If you know anyone who has had malaria and the experience with this, you have the fever, you have the deep aches and pains, but they subside every once in a while. It was between those subsitions that he would preach the gospel to the Galatians. But here's the thing. In that day, if someone were sick, if they had been given an illness as debilitating or as feverish as malaria, if it was that physically visual, how did people respond? We know how Jews respond. Someone would have to yell out in public, unclean, unclean, so that you would not bump elbows or pass this person by. If you had any interaction with this person there, you ran the risk of now contracting that disease yourself. Because in their minds, they believed that any kind of illness like this was a direct smiting of God. And so, if you didn't want to contract this disease yourself or the very hatred of God himself, then you avoided everyone. What you didn't know is that Gentiles also believed the same thing. 
They just didn't have a central God to put that on. So Paul shows up with malaria, having been beaten and left for dead. And he's fighting through that. And every moment he gets a break where the fever's not so bad or the pain is so debilitating, leaving him in bed, he preaches the gospel. And instead of rejecting him, the Galatians embraced him, he says. So much so that he said, if you could have, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. He's not using a language here that is like, hey, you liked me. How many of you know that's pretty intense language? He goes, not only did you embrace me, not reject me, not ostracize me, you received me and cared for me yourself. So where's my blessing now? Like if you, without Jesus, could receive me and care for me, a sick person who carried with them uncleanliness, a state that meant the offense of God was on me and you could contract it. Why would you care for me now? When, or why would you not care for me now when you have Jesus, you've been graciously given to, and you were more generous back then? Where's my blessing now? How many of you hear the heartbreak in Paul? He said, you can't turn back. I haven't turned back. He goes, I became like you. There was not another person on the planet that understood the law and its practices more than Paul. No one could challenge him. He was the Jew of the Jews. He rose above his contemporaries. He says, look, I literally ostracized myself from that for you. I was a person who no one could rival my understanding, my connection, my practice. But when I came to Jesus, I went through the vast tearing away from a life that was immersed in the legalism of law. And I completely emptied myself, that which had been enmeshed, previous to Jesus. So much so that if you remember the first of this book, we talked about how Saul of Tarsus went back to Tarsus with his tail between his legs. And what happened? Did they receive him? How did Tarsus respond? His own family wrote him off. Family and friends acted like they never knew him. They go, here comes that, here comes Saul of Tarsus. They sent him off to Jerusalem as like the Jew of the Jews, he's going to be somebody. He's going to be the understudy Gamaliel. But when he comes back, they're going, there, that guy selling tents over there by himself who lives in a cave by himself for the past 10 years. That, that was Saul of Tarsus. You ever heard his story? It's a tragic nightmare. It's a tragic tale. No one talks to him. No one loves him. Everyone hates him. He goes, I became like you. I literally ostracized myself from everything that gave me pride, power, and prestige. I was everything in Judaism. And I walked away from all of it and would do it again to be here in chains. One day with him because I have peace and contentment in him. That never brought me peace. There was one truth and one true source of salvation. And it wasn't that. So I walked away from that to become like you. One who doesn't practice the law. One who would eat like you. Live like you. Try to be as generous like you. Receiving the sick. Receiving those who were unclean just as an opportunity to share with them the gospel. You received me as an angel if I was Christ himself. Where is my blessing now? Now that you are in Christ, why are you stoic? Why have you changed? Where are you? Well, Paul's actually hinting at something. We're about to read it in our next few verses. And I just need you to understand the power by which he's writing this. He's writing about the influence these Judaizers have really had on these people and how it is leaving them uh, unsuccessful for the gospel 
and stoic. So in Galatians 4, verse 17 through 20, it says, Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. How many of you hate hypocrites? My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you and now change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So at the very end, Paul says, how many of you have ever get concerned about how your true emotion might get lost in text or translation when you send an email? How many of you ever get nervous like when you're typing something out, you send it off, you're like, man, they probably don't know the compassion by which I sent that. It's hard to pick that up in black and white. That's what Paul's writing here. He goes, I wish I could be with you. Because right here, not only does Paul say, we have seen a lot, we've been through a lot, but a lot is expected of us. A lot's expected now. And he goes, you are to invest that thing. You're not just to sit on your inheritance. You're to give that away. And his tone in this letter completely changes. From this point to this point, as he's been writing through Galatians, you could look at Paul as if he were like a scholarly lawyer in a courtroom debating his case. Literally fighting through everything that has, uh, giving every instance for why what he is saying is true and why they should listen. But right here, his entire demeanor changes. Everything about what he is saying shifts. No longer is he just simply trying to defend his case and trying to win the Galatians' ear. He's trying to appeal to them, no longer preaching, but with a heart of plea, pouring himself out, going, look, this eternity hangs in the balance for others. You have to get this. You're killing me here. You're breaking my heart. I don't know why I'm going through the pains of childbirth again, but you're listening more now to people who are turning you back to darkness than you are me who's turning you to the light. Why? Why would you be so zealous for them? All they desire is to win your ears so that they can distance you from me. I'm the one that shared with you the truth, and I am your forefather in this spiritually. Do not turn your back on me. Just listen. How, how many of you um, have ever been shocked? I, I went to seminary, and I did one of my master's in religion. And during that study, I had to do a study of cults. How many of you have ever had, a, in, had any interaction with cults? Okay. So here it is. A cult um, is incredibly attractive. They're incredibly attractive and intoxicating to people who are not familiar with the cult. Here's why. It's not because of their doctrine. It's not because of their belief. It's because they're loving. It's because they're accepting. Raise your hand if you want to be accepted. Raise your hand if you also want to be loved. People who survived cults come out of it going, dude, I don't know what, I didn't know what we believed. I didn't know what we were practicing. I just knew that those people loved me, accepted me. What earns the right to draw people into a cult is not what they believe. It's the way that they love. And there's a question that Paul's asking of these Galatians that I think he's posing to us. How in the world? Paul's saying, he goes, I, need, I wish I was with you so I could tell you in person so you know like just how 
brokenhearted I am, not angry, but how much this means to me. How in the world are you going to let people be so zealous and enlist you for a lie when you have the truth? How many of you have ever been fascinated by people who would give their lives to a cult and literally invest their entire life in a lie and do so more zealously than the Zoic, the Stoic church that maybe we've been a part of? Have you ever thought about that? He's going, how in the world can the only truth, the only saving truth, stand quiet in the churches as they sit and receive their inheritance and live on their inheritance and consume in their inheritance while other people are out there beating the roads and beating down doors for a lie? Hello? He goes, I need the church to no longer be stoic. I need you to get you off the sideline and in the game. You have the only thing that brings life. Why would you allow people to not only manipulate you, Galatians, allow people to lie to the rest of the world, keeping them in darkness, keeping them in demonic practices, and then enlist you to do the same thing when you've already been freed? This is a question that I feel is important because we won't be driven to get in the game if we don't realize by which the place we were saved. If we don't realize from whence we came, we won't get in the game. He's trying to point to something here. There's never been another person on the planet more loving or accepting of you than the lover of your soul. That's what the scriptures call Jesus. The lover of your soul. There's not another person on the planet that has pursued you by the power of his spirit like he did. Not one that has accepted you. Not one that has embraced you. Literally died for you while you were in your sin, Romans 5, 8 says. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us to redeem us. Why is this powerful? Well, it's powerful to me because I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And I wasn't raised as a son of a preacher, though that's what I do now. A lot of people have that misconception. A lot of people see a preacher and they go, oh yeah, his daddy was probably a preacher. Not mine, far from it. You know how I came to Jesus? I've talked about this before, but those of you who don't know this, this is for you. I came to Jesus because I had a shortstop who loved Jesus. I was a baseball player who had a 15-year-old shortstop who loved Jesus more than baseball, and that's how I became a Christian. That, that guy went on to be the best player on our team. And when he first started on our team, he was just a backup. He was actually my backup. I was our shortstop. But then I got hurt my junior season, and he became our starter. He told our coach, who was godless, look, God is more important to me than baseball. And I know you have a rule. Your rule is unless you practice every night, you do not play in games on the weekends. He goes, let me tell you what. I'm not going to be playing in the games on the weekends because I'm a backup. So I'm not going to be here on Wednesdays. God is more important to me than baseball. And since I'm only going to be sitting on the bench anyways, that's where I'll be. I'll be at church. That's more important to me. When I got hurt and he became the starter, he looked at our coach, Godless, who was Godless, and he says, deal stands. And our coach agreed. He missed every Wednesday practice, but still started every Friday night. And because he was so different, his demeanor was so different than anyone on my team, anyone in my school, 
I asked him one day while we were in practice, I said, how in the world do you get to practice on Wednesday nights and you still get to play in games? And he told me about the deal he'd made with, with our coach. And I said, and he, like, our, our coach agreed to that? He goes, yeah. Yeah, he did. God's more important than baseball, Justin. This is a game. I was led to Jesus by my shortstop. And guess what? It didn't stop there. That shortstop also led my first baseman, who's sitting on the left of me. And that first baseman today is about to start his own church. And guess what? It didn't stop there. My shortstop led that godless coach to Jesus. Today, that godless coach who wouldn't let you miss practice, even if it were for church, except for one kid who was the best player he'd ever coached, one kid who decided, I'm not doing that. Jesus is more important. Led that coach to Jesus. Because he knew his life was about investing the gospel. Baseball would someday end. Jesus is forever. So Paul is pleading with a heart, much like Paul is with the Galatians, much like I am with you. We've seen a lot How many of you experienced the miraculous in your life? Your own salvation was a miracle. I know mine was. I know my godless past. But I know the love of my shortstop and the truth that he shared with me led me to this place right here with you. We've been through a lot. And God has brought us on the other end. Hey, if all you've experienced was the pandemic, amen, how many of you are grateful we're where we are today versus where we are a year ago? So a lot is expected, folks. A lot is expected. We are not just heirs to to consume our inheritance. We were always entrusted with our inheritance that we had invested in other people. And this morning, there exists no love or purpose on the planet that exceeds Jesus for you or for your friends. There's not even one that rivals his love for your friends. Can I ask you a question How many of your friends are living without true peace, true contentment because they're living without Jesus? No one? Hands raised. How many of you have family and friends who are living without true peace, contentment, or freedom because they don't have Jesus? And guess who he put in their lives? You're their shortstop. Whether you live, work, or play with this person, wherever your life intersects with them, you're earning the right every day by the way that you live worthy of the gospel, the thing that saved you. As generous as as he was with you, you're to be with them. As gracious as he was with you, you're to be with them. You are earning the right to share the truth of your love source by the way that you love in front of them every single day. And how many of you today, the fact that God was loving enough to send someone to be gracious with you was good news for you. How many of you, God loved you enough to fight for you on the cross, giving his own life so that you could live and then sharing someone in your life to tell you that truth, forever changing the course of your eternal trajectory, that's good news for you that God sent someone to you. And for me, it's good news. For me, it's good news that my shortstop came into my life and not me, but my first baseman and coach all came to life in Jesus because of what he did, his investment. But I want you to understand 
The power of our investment comes from the place by which we were saved. The depth to which we were saved. Because your friends who you just raised your hand about are still there. They're drowning in self-worship, drowning in sin, and they have no hope apart from the only hope that's found in Jesus. And God gave them you. While they were in their rebellious state, sinners self-consumed, God gave them you. Just like when you and I were sinners in our selfish state, God died for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe today we need to be reminded of the fact that uh, that power changes everything, even this room. Can I ask you a question, church? I want to ask those who have been walking with Jesus for a while, those who know him, nothing you could do could reverse your eternal state, okay? Talk to you first. Here's my question. How many of you are saved because you took the reins of your life and you handed them to Jesus entirely, walked away, and you felt the reprieve of the weight of the world come off, sin and condemnation cast as far as the east and the west, free in Jesus? Know that feeling. How many of you, over time, have slowly taken some of those reins back and placed them in your own hands? How many of you have maybe unconsciously, maybe unknowingly, instead of leaving the reins in his sovereign hands because he's in control, you have taken a couple of those back from him because, well, let's just be honest. You're a control freak like I am. And it feels way more comfortable when it's in your hands than in someone else's. How many of you find freedom that the reins of your life are in the hands of perfection versus your flawed hands. So this morning, what I want to ask you to do is this. I want to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to say a statement. With your hands or your heart open to Jesus, palms out, if you will, how many of us need to embrace him again? This morning, need to find ourselves basking in his love for us as we hand him back the reins that we've tried to take back from him. Ultimately, he's in control, and our lives are entirely best in his hands, but we've been trying to take some of that back. This morning, church, I want you to pray as you repent and you receive from him and you place those things back in his hands. As the band is coming back, I want to talk to someone else in this room. I'm going to ask church to pray because there are people either listening online or in this room that also don't know that freedom. They're the very people that I was just talking about that we raised our hands for. They are in bondage without peace, no freedom, no contentment because they themselves don't know Jesus and are not known by him. This morning, that doesn't have to continue. This morning, that, that can change. As much as it changed for me, your entire eternal trajectory can change. You can have heaven and earth move today, right here in this moment, by the Lord himself. Move from death to life. And if that's you, whether you're listening online or you're in this room, I don't want you to go a step further into today without receiving, repenting, and beginning to walk in the freedom that he gave his life for you to have. He died so that he could live. Today, let's begin to live. Let this be the day of salvation. So, Father, I come to you. And I just want to thank you for the love of Jesus. And for my church friends who are handing back some things to you. 
Maybe for the millionth time, God, I pray you receive it in grace and may they see your love again on their lives as they embrace you. But Father, for those who don't know you, if they're listening online, I pray they'd email me, prayer at thefellowship.cc today. For those in this room, I pray they'd come talk to me before they leave because the most important decision they could ever make could be happening right here in this moment. And that is to trust you for life because you're the only source of life the planet can offer. No one will love them and will accept them like you. No one's gonna pursue them like you are pursuing them right now. I pray that they'd turn to you. And if that is you and you're listening, I wanna help you. I wanna just help you know how to turn to him. There's nothing magic about these words, it's just this. Father, I love you. You just repeat to your, in your heart to him right now. Father, I love you. And I thank you for loving me enough to send Jesus to die in my place, to take what I deserve. I'm sorry for living for myself. Sorry for being self-absorbed in my life, sinning against yours. I thank you for forgiving me and I ask that you would receive me as I take the reign of my own life, all of it, and entirely put it in your hands. I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for you. And I ask that you'd save me today in Jesus' name. I pray your Holy Spirit would change the atmosphere in this room and in my life right now. Take the weight, condemnation of sin off of me. Cast as far as the east and the west. Make me yours, make me new. In Jesus' name.